This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello, hello, hello. This is That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. My name is Lisa Traeger. And my name, as always, is Kara Clank. Lisa, what's up? Well, we have to tell them it's an SVU podcast. We talk about an episode, the crime, a guest. You guys don't know that by now? It's like episode... (laughs) Come on. Maybe someone's just a big fan of only this episode. Yeah, in case you are (laughs) starting here on this episode in the 30s, We are an SVU podcast. We dissect an episode from the show. Then we talk about the true crime it was based on. And we interview a guest associated with the episode in the episode, usually. And we got a hunk this time. Yeah, baby. Um, Huge news for us. We did finally go see Zola after waiting. Yes, that's what I was going to get into. I was so excited to talk about Zola that I forgot to introduce what our podcast is about. (laughs) Yeah, Zola was (laughs) incredible filmmaking. And anyone cool that I run into has already seen it. We saw it opening night, right? Um, well, with LA, it's like weird where things are yeah. before them, but it was fun. I, you know, mom's day out. <laughs> and the best news is there is an SVU cameo in Zola. Um, Officer Caldoun, aka Ariel Stachel. And he had a nice little sex scene, a little part, and it was thrilling to see him. I wish we got to see him more, but you know. Yeah. We were busy seeing amazing outfits and sad scenes and just amazing filmmaking, I would say. Yeah, it was like, I truly can't stop thinking about it. I think about it all the time. (laughs) Like, it was so good. Yeah, I'm going again. Yeah, I was saying, I was like, I was like, I never go see movies twice, but I would easily go see that movie again. Never? You've never seen a movie twice? Not never, but like, I can name it. In the theater? Yeah. In the theater, I saw Sense and Sensibility twice. (laughs) Never seen that one. So sad. And I honestly can't think of another one. 
I can't think of another time I've paid to go see a movie like two times in the theater. Yeah, I was acting shocked, but I don't know if I've done that. You know, but I've gone. I've I used to rent the same movie constantly from Blockbuster. Oh, you know what other movie I've seen twice? That movie playing by heart. I was telling you about that. You were like, what the hell is this movie? Hopefully this is another chipmunk effect. And everybody writes me and tells me how much they love this fucking movie. But it's one of those ensemble movies where everybody has their own storyline. And then you kind of find out how everybody's together. And it's early Angelina Jolie. Like it might be the first thing I ever saw Angelina Jolie in and like Ryan Phillippe and all these people. So anyway, love that movie. And I saw it twice in the theater. I when you said the playing of the heart or whatever, I thought crimes of the heart. Do you know about that one? (laughs) No, what's that? It's a movie that I think was successful, but it is a play. And in high school theater, I did a scene from it. And I could tell my theater teacher was impressed. Like, I think like Shirley MacLaine's in it or something. Oh, yeah. Okay. when I look at the poster of this movie, it's it's Diane Keaton, Jessica Lange and Sissy Spacek. I mean, icons only. This is like I got to watch this. And, you know, I have worked with Jessica Lange before. Um, No big deal. Excuse me. (laughs) I know. In Horace and Pete, I was at the bar and um, I have lines with Jessica Lange. Like she she tells me to shut the fuck up or something or like you dumb bitch. Like she says something mean to me. No. what, What was she like in real life? She was really in character and like focused. And yeah. so I wasn't like palling around with her on set, sure. but very kind and perfect, like amazing. Not a rude thing to say about her, but we didn't like vibe. Right. But I did see her <laughs> napping on a little couch in some hallway. And it was a really amazing experience to be like, oh, the best in the world are working for SAG minimum and sleeping on a couch to make something <laughs> good. So if anyone's yeah. a dick on set, it makes no sense to me because I'm I'm watching Jessica Lang nap on a random loose couch. Uh, so and that's the same, like everyone amazing that I've worked with is always like the best. It's always like the people not that good. I don't know. Like Steve Buscemi was on that set. Alan Alda, Edie Falco. Yeah. It was an incredible experience. The greats know how to act. Yeah, I wish uh, Louis wasn't a dumb bitch so I could brag about it more. But it was <laughs> an amazing career moment. Uh in my life. I think we all wish Louie wasn't a dumb bitch. I mean, yeah. you nailed it. <laughs> and not to, I do have another brag. Okay. I, I did a comedy show last night at Dynasty okay, Typewriter. Yes, yes. Tell us, tell us, tell us. I was going to ask you how it went. Yeah, it was. I mean, I am still high off of it, honestly. Like, I can't. <laughs> I was the last person to leave. And then I stood with audience members in the parking garage refusing to leave. Like, I just wanted to savor every moment. But Benito Skinner and Mary Beth Barone had this show. And Maggie Rogers was on one of the shows. And she sounded... Like when she started to say she was so cool backstage and so nice and fun. But then I forgot. And then the moment she started to sing, I couldn't believe I was in her presence. Like she sounded. Yeah, she has such a beautiful voice. Uh, really. And we were all upset. So what was funny, Meg Stalter was on the show and I DM'd her earlier in the day going, can't wait to see you and Maggie Rogers. And she thought I was kidding. And she goes, that's a funny joke. Why would she say that? And then she said when she walked into the green room, she fully gasped and realized I was not kidding she didn't know maggie was on the show no no one really knew and she thought i was just joshing with her like pulling a prank she was like lisa oh, i assumed she saw the promo <laughs> there and, was like, no knew- promo nothing was announced oh really yeah and then langston kerman couldn't believe it i told him he was like i listened to her album all the time like we were all we all couldn't believe it like wow. she sounded i mean i mean it was i can't wait for her new album Amazing. Oh my God. Well, Lisa, star studded. Star studded. Yeah. 
It was star studded. And then <laughs> there were people on that show. We were at the same July 4th party and I didn't even know because I got so anxious that I had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody can relate to that. Yeah. I'm like, we're both really social chatty people. Um, I didn't expect to get tired out socializing and I'm sure some substances I took added to that, but I had to leave. Sure. And also just like, we're a little out of practice. I mean, we're, we are easing into like the full social calendar, you know? So I would give yourself a break. I gave myself, I just, I expected to be like, I'm going to rage all night, you know, (laughs) I'll fuck on your lawn. And then at 11, I was like, can I get a ride home? Please. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't be here anymore. I cannot like ask how someone knows the hosts of the party again. I like, I don't have it in me. Yeah. I had a um, cute 4th of July where Rosie went to a party with all older boys and just totally threw herself into their posse. And it was um, gave me hope for her future. I miss her every time I hear about her. I, I want know more. Well, we're going to get you two together. But I did see little Oscar yesterday. Oh, you did. He's getting he's looking like cuter. a real. Yeah, he's looking like a he's getting baby. cuter and a little easier by the day. <laughs> so hopefully a month from now he's going to be gorgeous and easy. Um we do have to wrap up but I wanted to talk about how Mariska Hargitay keeps fucking breaking her body. What's going on? Like I have no idea. She what just happened. brained another ankle and was like this is my summer look. I'm like didn't you just recover from like a knee thing? Yeah, I don't know. Drink calcium? I have no idea. I don't know yeah, what to say. We need to get Mariska on that Boniva tip. I don't know what's <laughs> going on. Lisa, we always yeah. What did I burp out loud? No, I absolutely need to call you out (laughs) that you were like, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie twice in theaters. And like four, 10 episodes ago, you were like, how have you never seen a movie twice in the theaters, Kara? I've done it with this movie, this movie, this movie. And you like listed them. Really? No, no, no. Like I've watched, like if I like a movie, I'll watch it dozens of times and it's always on. But I knew that Kara Sense and Sensibility fact because we talked about it on the pod. No recollection. That's why I was calling you about that. that that. Fuck. Well, the listeners are going to better get used to that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Year one, we're already repeating stories. I don't know what to do. (laughs) Oh, I did want to add I went to wildly a 6 a.m. soul cycle. I'm not a morning person, but it was a Rihanna ride. And I had to do it and it was perfect. And if anyone out there ever sees on any schedule, Rihanna music workout, go. It's the perfect music. Yeah. It's like powerful, inspirational, fast memories. Like it's just. Did they do We Found Love? Of course. It's like my favorite. That's like my favorite. I love that song. I mean, that's like post pandemic. Like dream is like me being in a packed dance floor and that song comes on and everyone jumps up and down in unison. Like that's what I want. I also want to, I, we got to do it at Megan's wedding, but my dream was, you know, that song where it was like, shut up and dance with me. Oh my God. My, at my wedding, that was the hugest song. Well, I always said, I go, I want to dance to this at a wedding. I'm like, this is the perfect dance wedding song. And then it played at our friend's wedding. And I was like, my dreams are coming true. I was in the middle of a conversation with someone at that wedding and that song came on and I went, I'm sorry, I can't. And I just like ran away because I had to go to the dance floor. <laughs> no, being a bride is cool. Probably you could be like, peace. I didn't even yeah. want to invite you, you dumb bitch. And they still have <laughs> to say you look incredible. Let's get started. Sorry. Let's I go. Soul cycle. I'm an addict. We can never keep it short. I don't know why you try, Hannah. All right. So today we're doing Rapists Anonymous um, and it's season 15. It is episode nine. Hulu says episode eight. 
shut your mouths. We don't know. We don't <laughs> care. We don't know. It's like Hulu has a vendetta against us on this podcast. Um, but the episode starts out so exciting. I love seeing the detectives on their off hours and they are at a crew dinner at Marishka's and uh, Cassidy is there. Short, curly hair, Benson, Amaro, Melinda Warner, Ice-T and Cragen's with a date named Eileen. So pretty exciting. Is this even a holiday? I think they're just having dinner. Which yeah, is nice. I think they're just it's they're doing a, a rare glimpse into and coincidentally, they just did like a rap photo of now of Mariska having all the cast and crew like over to her house and like the big, the big high up people. And it was like a long 20 person dinner and it looked really nice. She's always with Allie Wentworth and Allie Wentworth is best friends with like the Seinfelds and anyone. Who is she? Why is she friends with everyone I want to be friends with? She was an actress. I don't think she acts much anymore, but she's married to George Stephanopoulos, I think. Yeah, that answers nothing, Kara. Yeah, it's just another loose person who no one cares about. You know, like, (laughs) how are they friends with all of high society? I, I just mean, don't get it. George what? Stephanopoulos is a pretty big personality, but um, and then <laughs> Melinda's being wild, and she's just like, she's a lesbian, he's trans, and a murder weapon was found in his anal canal. And then Ice T's talking about necrophilia, and Benson's like, let's <laughs> relax, guys, <laughs> let's just have a nice uh, dinner and not talk about work. And then it is silence, and that's kind of like me and Kara. If someone says, let's not talk shit about someone, we have <laughs> nothing to say. Can we just like have a positive time where we like don't talk? shit we're just like super nice we're like absolutely and then nothing <laughs> yeah um and i'm sure there's no one that's listening to this is like wait where's rollins but they tell us anyways so <laughs> we see rollins and they jump to an aa style type meeting in a dark basement there's desserts and uh a woman named lena is talking she's blonde with short hair and then there's a man next to rollins with a douche lord hat and um lena's talking how she's been sober for almost a year and uh, um, the douche lord hat is Nate, Lena's first sponsor in LA, and Rollins and Nate smile at each other. So, you know, if if <laughs> if you get vibes, you see what's up. So back to dinner. Um, Cassidy lets us know that Olivia is now gonna be sergeant um and that she got 48th out of 8,000 on her test, which is impressive. And then Benson's like, Yay, Cassidy's gonna be a detective again, but at IAB and everyone's like, Ugh, gross. Yeah. Um, but Amaro's a gentleman. He's like, that's great. Congrats. This is awesome. We cut back to the AA crew and uh, Nate owns a bar. So that's weird. And Nate is douche Lord guy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Nate is a sponsor, owns the bar and he's with two hot blondes, Lena and Rollins, and they order wings for the table. And then we see a bald man with a beard. Um, like, you know, someone recently did a joke where they called this hairstyle um, a flesh covered yarmulke, which I thought was funny. <laughs> I wish I remembered the comedian's name, but um, it was uh, not not an original thought. So they're all sitting there talking and Lena is touching the bald man's upper thigh very sexually. We later learn his name's Gene. I'll start calling him Gene instead of that bald man over there. <laughs> So she's like rubbing his upper thigh pretty sexually. And um, now Rollins and Nate are getting really sexy and close. And he's like, thanks for coming. AA. I know that's not your thing. And she's like, I can still learn. And Rollins is like, we decided last time this was a bad idea. And he's like, I know. And what? And so now they're fucking. Well, they're about to fuck. They're in foreplay action. 
Again, another scene you don't see very often on an SVU. You don't really see the detectives. You sometimes see them kiss and then wake up in a, in a man's shirt. But you don't, like, see a lot of the, like, rolling like thunder under the covers action, you know? Yeah, I was very into it. And Nate, <laughs> he, he's a hot guy. For those who yeah. don't know, he's in real life married to Amanda Seyfried. Seyfried. Figure it out. Uh, but you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. He's a Broadway baby, too. But then, so someone's buzzing at the door, interrupting the sex, and he's like, don't get the door. But it's like, okay, I understand not answering a phone call, but a door in the middle of the night, you have to answer. Right. <laughs> you can't ignore that. It's not about... You know, he wants to fuck. So Rollins puts on a sweater, but she's already wearing a long sleeve flannel shirt. So I she's barely undressed. I don't know why she had to put on a sweater to answer the door. Um, But it's Lena. She's crying and she's saying that Jean took her home, had a few drinks and then raped her. So she falls into Rollins arms to cry. And that's the credits, baby. So. A real intertangled mess. Mm-hmm. We got back from the credits and Lena tells Rollins that he was buzzing at her door and he had been drinking. She could smell. She could smell the booze on his breath and they were kissing, but it heated up super fast. He made her crawl on all fours to the bed, which reminds me of the episode of Girls with Sherry Appleby, who is also an SVU alum. And um, he we also learn he has a fiance and she's a prude and they call her missionary Melissa. So Whoa. and um He's so he's cheating on her. He's a super kinky person and a rapist. And um, so, yeah, he threw her on the bed and grabbed her hair and was being super rough and hurting her. And Rollins is like, did you say no and stop? And she says yes. But he kept going. And then she's like, wait, but is that rape? I don't know, because I let him back in. And Rollins is like, wait, what? And so we find out that he walked her home earlier. They had a quickie in the doorway that was consensual. But the second time when he came back, he forced her. And Rollins is like, yeah, that is rape. Um, And then a doctor at the hospital tells Rollins that she's holding up and that they did a rape exam and she has a sedative right now. And then the doctor says, you can take your sister home. And Rollins is like, wait, sister. And the doctor was like, oh, sorry, maybe I misheard something. I'm not really sure. So that's a little suspicious that the sister thing came out because obviously we know she has a shady sister. So was it a mistake? Is this on purpose? What's happening? SVU. Let's go, baby. So then we're back at the precinct and Rollins breaks in from her whole group and tells the whole squad how she knows Lena from AA. And Benson is drinking a green juice, which I love. And she has turquoise earrings, which I love even more. (laughs) It's very Santa Fe Benson. Yeah, I just I've never seen her in a green juice. It's always coffee, coffee, (laughs) coffee, maybe a Diet Coke once in a while. But I've never seen a green juice. (laughs) She's trying to survive to make captain, you know. And then the funniest thing is I love when they all like I love the specificity of jobs sometimes like I'm reminded of the Flavor Institute and here (laughs) Jean is an in-house lawyer at a baby supply chain like is that someone's cousin's job like how do they come up with this stuff I mean these writers are incredible so they go to his job and he's like listen I'm stressed what do you want from me (laughs) but he shows text messages and Lena is all into it like when he says I want you to crawl and I'm gonna fuck you she's like oh that's humiliating I fucking love it so uh oh these texts like that makes this case really hard Rollins asks like 
hey, why did you say you were my sister at the hospital? And she's like, I said you were like a sister to me. I didn't want to break AA anonymity like you did at the precinct earlier. Um, So, yeah, that's really she's quick. You know, like I didn't want to say we know each other from the meetings. Barbara's um, watching this through, like watching them chat at, you know, through the window. And he's like, this is a rough case. You know, Gene's a Jewish lawyer. He's a good boy. She's an addict and a sales clerk. So classic Barbara bullshit that you all fully forget because you want to have sex with him so bad. But he is a problem. So Amaro goes to see Gene to put some pressure on him and see if they can talk to his fiance. And Gene's like, listen, leave my fiance alone. She's working at a refugee camp in Haiti. You don't have to bother her. So I love that missionary oh, Melissa wow. is a real missionary too, you know, in all in all ways. Oh my God, missionary Melissa. That's wait, I did not even put that together. That's too good. I didn't either until good. right now. So it, it's I'm on the fly. Do you think if you're a missionary, you have to be more sexually adventurous so that people don't just label you with these kind of nicknames? No, if you're a missionary, you're like, I'm a a missionary, but I love it doing it reverse cowgirl. Just FYI. Like you have to be super clear on your dating profiles. This is like so tough for me because missionaries are bad people. Like they pretend they're good people, but they're bad. Like if you go to do volunteer work and actually work, but if you're there to convert people and make people Christians, like you're a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. That's like book of Mormon shit too. Yeah, exactly. Cause I went to an evangelical Christian college. If anyone has forgotten and (laughs) um, I was in a conflict resolution class and we put together like some sort of conference for peace. I don't know, but we had people (laughs) from the community talk and there was someone that was like um they helped people get off the street but their number one goal was converting them to christianity like that was success to them like they like if they got someone off the street and functioning in a home and a job and like off of drugs like that wouldn't be successful to them like converting them is their number one goal right and so to me that's when it clicked in my brain i'm like oh you guys are bad people you know they're the type of people that are anal sexing for jesus like okay this is this is very interesting and comes into play in the real crime keep going (laughs) thank you keep going (laughs) thanks for uh, (laughs) i I love where this is where you're taking well i also wanted to say i went into christian college very open-minded and i left being like you're the worst. Um, <laughs> stop bragging about your Africa You were ready to be trip. a Jew for Jesus when you first got there, though? No, I was ready to just be like, okay, whatever. Like, this is like Notre uh-huh. Dame or Loyola. Like, I don't care. Everyone's yeah. cool and gets to believe what they want. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I hate you guys. Um, yeah. Why do I have to write three <laughs> papers about gay marriage? This is such a non-issue for me. Like, people were truly, like... In Christian ethics, we talked about how sad it was that more like Christians couldn't save more Jews in the Holocaust. And it's like, you guys aren't the victims. Like it was really not center. It it was a fucked up place to be. But I'm really uh, grateful for that experience. And I did like a couple people and I met my best friend there, but she also (laughs) knew it was bullshit. Okay, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) And I'm a really famous alumni. They don't give me any respect. Why am I not in the pamphlets? Huh? I wonder. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay. So they have to figure out if this is part of a pattern or like what's actually going on or is this right? Like, so they find out that the Gene and Lena have fucked at a Brooks Brothers dressing room, which is funny that like they're talking down about her being a sales clerk, but Brooks Brothers is pretty fancy, you know, like you do. Okay. Wow. I didn't realize it was a Brooks Brothers. Right. I I missed that detail. 
That's okay. an expensive store. I've never that shopped there. That is an expensive there. store. I used to try to like go there to find like Father's Day presents, I guess. Yeah, I got my dad nuts this year. Mixed I nuts. saw. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do nuts.com? No, unfortunately, I had to do Amazon because I forgot until Saturday. And even okay. though they're an evil corporation, they will get your dad nuts in 24 ASAP. hours. <laughs> And then he, Gene says that he told Melissa everything on Skype. So this is pre Zoom and that she forgave him. And she, and, but it's like, girl, you can do better. Why are you like missionary <sighs> Melissa? But maybe she just loves him and knows he's an addict. I don't know. But it's like he is fully cheating on you constantly. Do not forgive him. So we cut to Lena and Rollins at Nate's bar again. And Lena's eating spaghetti and meatballs that look amazing. And Rollins is just explaining to Lena why this is a tough case. Like, I believe that you were raped, but the texts, like, this really does make it a hard case right and she's like listen i smoke and i have sex i don't drink i don't gamble i don't do drugs like those are my things like i don't know what you want from me i can't have nothing Mm -hmm. and she says just stay away from him and if he hollers at you contact me immediately rollins and nate like move over to flirt by the bar and lena is alone and they're talking about her while looking at her like she's probably like okay i could tell you guys are talking about me (laughs) the bar's basically empty yeah (laughs) He has three shirts on a sweater, a flannel and a renaissance white shirt underneath and a Goran's brother hat. He, it's just so many layers. Yeah. And the layers really threw you, Lisa. It was like we watched this episode together and you were just like, why? So many layers. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's just tough for me because I would feel claustrophobic in those so many layers um, and then cuts to them shirtless in bed. So they did. So obviously Lena. Rollins had a problem with the layers, too. She's like, take it all off. They yeah, just got yeah. in bed and that, that probably took. That was a 25 minutes of foreplay. <laughs> um, so the phone buzzes and wakes Rollins up. Crime scene. Uh-oh. Rollins meets Ice-T and Jean took a header off the roof, in quotes, um, off of Lena's building. So Jean is dead at the bottom of Lena's building and he fell off the roof. He is dead. Um, Ice and Rollins agree. This is no good. Not good. Lena is like, wait, this makes no sense. He fell off my roof. I don't get it. And Lena's like, I wanted a drink so bad. So instead I made a 12 step call and he was furious and accusing me of like ruining his life. And Lena's saying that she tried calling calming him down. And Jean said he wanted to make amends. And Rollins is like, did he come by here? And she says, no, it's this bitch is a liar. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then she goes, I don't get why you won't believe me. It's like, because you keep lying. Yeah. This and he story fell off is your roof wild. and you yeah. called him. Like, why are you surprised they don't believe you? I, okay. So Ice-T is outside and I guess Nate came up in the conversation, like when they were talking to Lena. So Ice-T is like, what's up with Nate? Who is this? And Rollins is like, you're not my daddy. Leave me alone. I'm a big girl, Ice-T. And doesn't want to talk to him. So cool. Well, he points out that like you're you're not supposed to. Well, first of all, you're definitely not supposed to date your sponsor. And I think you're not even supposed to have a sponsor of the sex that you're attracted to, maybe. But I think it's just for her because she's slutty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like, you're not supposed <laughs> so to have those a are guy. specific Rollins rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is cute. I see is like trying to look out for her. I think it's kind of cute. No, I love their relationship. I love yeah. an ice tea Rollins. Um, yeah vibe so they are meeting up at the medical examiner's office and melinda says that he died immediately from impact and she says there's small amounts of liquor and drugs but he wasn't drunk and he wasn't alone and they're like how do you know so (laughs) his pants are unzipped 
There's saliva on his penis and fresh ejaculate in the urethra. She says most men pee after sex and that clears out all the leftover jizz. But so that means he recently came and there was leftovers, but he didn't get time to pee. And then Melinda has an iconic line where she says he came and then he went. Which I posted in our stories and I will I will say I will find this story and I will put it in our mention it all uh, highlight. But I posted that they just made that same joke again in the current season where they go, they go, he went, but he never came. Like they made the same exact Melinda joke about coming and then dying. (laughs) So um, after that iconic moment that I'm glad they did a fucking callback to. (laughs) <laughs> they're in interrogation with Lena Benson and Amaro and Amaro's knee is up on the chair and he's just looking sexy as hell. So Lena now says she let him in. I mean, it's like uh, she is a mess. So yeah. Lena says she let him in to talk on the doorway. And then they're like, well, how did you get on the roof? And she's like, I didn't want him in the apartment. And we've had sex on the roof before. um, And he likes it on the ledge. He's like very into that. And she thought if she went along with it, he would leave her alone. She went to suck his dick and take care of it. But then he got violent and pulled her hair and grabbed her. And she got scared and pushed him off the roof after she screamed, like, don't hurt me. I mean, I don't. It sucks, but I don't believe a word she's saying. So. Amara's like, why did you lie? And she's like, why would I lie? No one believed me because I'm a liar. I mean, I don't, I I honestly, it's like, Lena, leave me alone. And then Barba does have a great line where he goes, her not telling us that she filleted him with frizzle rocks in her mouth. Like, tattoo that on my forehead. I love that. Yeah, he says that, but like, had that come up earlier or that's like a later detail that they find out? No, no one has mentioned it. No one mentions it again, but like Melinda never said, I found ejaculate in the urethra as well as crystallized candy fragments from Frizzle Rock. Like we never heard that, right? No, I but <laughs> but I love that. And I love Pop Rocks, which I'm assuming is Frizzle it's Rocks. The same. Yeah. yeah, so <laughs> that's... That's also like an urban legendy type of thing I've heard of, of like, yeah, get like, give a guy a BJ with pop rocks in your mouth. But if you've done that, let us know a, how you didn't choke and B if it went off, if it went well, let us know, DM us. Um, Rollins, of course, is trying to defend her. So they're not going to find Melissa, the fiance, and see what her story is and if anything matches and they can get more clues from her. But first, Nate and Rollins and the dog, you know, Franny or Frankie or whatever. I'm sure someone will let me know. I think it's Franny. I think it's Franny. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And they're walking with a really pretty view of New York and talking over the case, which also seems insane. Like, what are you? Why are you? I there's not a detective that's made more worse than decisions than fucking Rollins. And <laughs> yeah. so then Rollins is like, are you sponsoring Lena? Like you're sponsoring me. And he's like, Hey, don't be mad. And like reprimands her. But it's like, okay, you're fucking everybody. Um, Amaro and I see her gossiping at the precinct about Rollins and Melissa shows up in a sweater asking if they're investigating Jean's murder. And they're like, who told you he was murdered? And she says, Jean did. And I feel like this is like a twenties movie. I was just like, I love it. Um, <laughs> And so basically he left her a voicemail and they listen to the message and he, Jean says, Melissa, it's me. I'm afraid what Lena might do. I'm going to try to talk some sense into her. If anything happens to me, call the police. I love you. And that was at 10 PM. 
She threatened him and Melissa and stalked him. And when he tried to end it, she accused him of rape. And when that didn't work, she fucking killed him. And uh, so the super shows up, too. I mean, it's just a fucking rat race at the precinct today. Everyone's coming into red on Lena. So everyone hates her. So the the building super gives the scoop that Lena asked him how to disable the roof door alarm like a few nights ago because um, she wanted to go smoke up there, but he knew it wasn't for smoking because he's caught uh, Jean and her fucking up there before multiple times. And after Jean's death, when he went up there, the batteries were out of the alarm. So that's a clue. Now, Benson and Amaro go to arrest Lena and Lena's like, what? Why are you doing this? And Amanda's there. What the fuck? So Amanda's in her apartment and Amanda's like, what the fuck? And Benson is like disappointed in Amanda, like scoffs at her. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Rollins. So I just don't get how she's a detective. So Barbara and Rollins are talking and Lena's like, listen, Rollins wanted to call as a friend. Like she didn't make any admissions to me. And Rollins is like, I didn't even know her that well. And Barbara's like, what the fuck do you mean? You didn't know her that well. She thought you were close enough to disclose a rape to you. And Rollins says it's because she knew I was an SVU detective. And Barbara goes, you told her that. And Rollins is confused a little bit and goes, I mean, maybe I brought it up in a meeting. So this is a foreshadow. If you guys know that word or if you went to English (laughs) class, if you did sixth grade English class, you know that this is a foreshadow. (laughs) So Rollins asks if meetings are confidential and he says ethically, yes, but legally, no. So if there's something, you better speak up, bitch. And Barbara says he's not going to ask Rollins to testify, which is super cute. So now we're in court and Benson's on the stand and Barbara... Barba is asking <laughs> about how Lena is a liar. Um, and Nia Verdalos is in this episode as a defense attorney. So very star studded episode. And she's a hero. I love her so much. And Lena has glasses on high collars, dress shirt, like full librarian chic baby. And Nia is going after Benson hard. And this is one of my favorite judges, Elena Barth, played by Jenna Stern in 19 episodes of the show. And she's also been on the mothership and criminal intent a bunch. So Dick Wolf obviously very much loves her. So court is happening, but now we're back at the precinct and Olivia does throw some shade to Rollins. Like, damn, you got your friend, a real good lawyer. That's that. Okay. Wow. Um, Rollins is like, Hey guys, I see this clearly. And I, and I see it. Why don't you guys trust me? And it's like, Oh, because you've constantly lied before and put all of us at risk constantly. Okay. (laughs) So Benson and Rollins are like at the precinct going into it. And Benson's like, you need to like, shut up and just focus on your life, girl. So then we cut back to the meeting and Nate is talking at a meeting and he's been sober for 10 years, yada, yada, yada. And what do we have here? fucking Amaro. Amaro is undercover in a ranger sweatshirt looking sexy as hell again with a classic New York coffee cup and he sees Nate as like macking on girls and Amaro tries to bond with him and is like hey what's up like I need some help and Nate blows him off fully and goes off with like one of the girls that he's flirting with and so Amaro knows what's up. But and Amaro and like this is more foreshadowing, I think, of how Amaro has the hots for Rollins. Right. Like, obviously, he's doing this to get information about the case. But I think he's also doing this to like there's two reasons he's trying to help Rollins see that the guy guy she's hooking up with is like a Lothario. 
So um, they're in bed. So Rollins and Nate are back in bed. And Rollins is like, hey, do you remember how it came up that I worked in SVU? And he was like, I don't know. Maybe I could have mentioned it. Like, he doesn't. I don't. So, okay. So implying that he probably is the one that told Lena, right? Like, that's like the implication. Yeah. Um, And so... And through their convo, we find out the defense is calling Amanda to take the stand. Lena's going to take the stand, too. And then while they're talking about this court case, he's kissing her on her shoulder and lying to her face. And we hate him. We also hate Melissa, who's now taking the stand because, you know, she's boring at sex. Boo. We hate her. Um <laughs> So she's on the stand and saying that he was doing anything he could to get away from her, um, that Lena was sending videos to Melissa of them fucking and all these messages saying that like he would like he's mine. He's going to leave you. And once like she realized Jean didn't want her, she screamed rape. And when no one believed her, she killed him. So, you know. That's a great testimony, but now it's Nia's turn to go for Melissa. And Melissa, I mean, she gets swept. What is it? Wiped the floor with. Um, <laughs> she's basically like, he said um, he would marry you, but you've never set a date. There was no venue booked. And he kept seeing, you know, Miss Olsen. We learned her last name. So I bet she's Swedish descent. <laughs> And so they were just like, maybe um, is it possible he was just giving himself like a cover and that he did want her? And Nia's just like, oh, he was so scared that he went to the roof and like had her suck his dick on a ledge, like because he was so scared. If he was so scared, why would he do that? Like you've never done anything kinky with him. You've never drank with him. So maybe there's another side to him that you just don't know. That's like an amazing defense. Like that is so fucking good. Where it's like Melissa, you might actually be a loser. So that he doesn't actually like that much <laughs> so they cut to the bunk bed locker room at the station and Rollins is screaming at Amaro like how dare you spy and get involved in my life like shut up and then Amaro makes the number one mistake of all time and tells her to calm down bad move she's not Ooh. gonna calm down um and so Amaro's like listen I went with the other guys and they all said he sucks and he's shady and a 13 stepper which means like he's always fucking new girls and Rollins is like you're just jealous and you're addicted to your own misery and I see is like whoa 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 relax and she's like, none of you are my dads. <sighs> it's like, you wish they were your dads. Your real dad sucks. These yeah. guys are good guys, generally. Yeah, and the men are just sitting there being like, well, that sucks. Um, and it's like, Rollins is just so wrong. We see it. Everyone sees it. And she's just like a fucking dummy. So, like, it's right. you know, usually I would try to be on a woman's side, but not here. So she runs to Nate's bar to have coffee. And we find out that Nate is testifying, too, but didn't mention it to Rollins, which is fucked up because they were just in bed talking about how Rollins is going to testify. So mm -hmm. it could have naturally come up. And and he quotes like an AA quote and it's like, keep it moving, baby. And um, so now we are back in court. Thank God. Alina's uh, on the stand again in a library and chic. And she's talking about her bad dad and that Jean would call her his three hole wonder. And I can't believe NBC aired that. Like, I've never thought that that would happen in my wildest <laughs> dreams. Um <laughs> She's saying that she was scared of him, but she felt like, you know, she did what he wanted and kept her happy that he would be nice and leave her alone. And she just wanted to comply. And, she, you know, she's putting out what is it like the violence? She's making the little people 
play little violins, whatever that is. And so, but Barba is ready to like fuck with her. So Barba is like, Lena, are you really upset that the rape charges didn't stick? Or are you mad that he didn't leave his fiance? Rude. And she's like, how dare you? Cause I was raped. And he's like, yeah, but you invited him in and you sucked his dick on the roof. So what's happening? And Barbara's like, like, so you're telling me he came and then immediately became violent. Like that makes no sense like you you're now you're usually chill after you come and she's like stop <laughs> yelling at me it's like my dad and so a lot of dad stuff in this episode you know he asks why did you lie to the cops so much um she has no answer so now Rollins is getting a little nervous about like taking the stand. Amaro and Barba are gossiping about Nate. And then back at the precinct, we find out Cassidy is making Olivia clam sauce for dinner, which delicious. And then Amanda's pulling a double to be there when Nate testifies. Like she is acting like a 14 year old girl. It is really uncomfortable. Well, for a detective, she's not picking up on a lot of fucking like signals and signs and evidence. Like you should yeah. be a little bit more. She's acting like, like a real cop, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> Amaro is like, yo, I don't think you want to do that. And she's like, I don't think I asked for your opinion, bitch. So Rollins is fuming Ooh. and Benson goes to like just chill her out and is like, girl, like relax. Um, maybe you should go talk to someone. Maybe you should go to therapy. And Rollins says something that she thinks is a burn, but it really isn't. She goes, oh, I don't have to pay for someone to listen to my problems. And it's like, Okay, yeah, you just go to meetings where you're being fully used and taken advantage of and you're a fucking idiot. So Nate's on the stand and Nia is playing softball with him and then Barba is about to just like go down. And I do I forgot to say that Amaro does tell Rollins like you probably don't want to go watch Nate's testimony and she's like fuck you, you know, like so yeah. we know something is about to happen. So Barbara is like, oh, you're a therapist. And it's like, no, you're not, um, which I loved that little sass. But Nate admits he's had sex with Lena. Whoa. And Lena turns around and gives Amanda like puppy dog eyes like, I'm so sorry. Barbara asks, when is the last time you fucked her? And it was one week ago. So while he's fucking Rollins, he's fucking Lena. And it's all coming out on the stand. And he admits that Rollins didn't know about Lena, but Lena knew about Rollins. He shared about Rollins' sister and job. And then Lena asked Nate to bring Rollins. And he did. Rollins leaves wiping tears away because she's humiliated. Um, but don't worry, she will never grow or change or be a better person. Um, <laughs> Nate meets her at the elevator and is like, I know you're upset. Like, let's just talk. Like, let's go to a meeting. Quotes, 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 forgive and forget. Um, uh, you know, I still believe you, Amanda. It's progress, not perfection. Don't give up on the program. She doesn't say anything back to him. And Barba comes and says sorry to her. And he had to do it. She's not angry with him, which is correct. She only has herself to be angry at. Um, okay, so, you know, she is guilty. Lena is guilty. The jury finds her guilty um, of murder and she's remanded for sentencing. Bye, bitch. Go to jail. Glasses and vests are not going to help you here. Rollins <laughs> and Ice and Cragen are chatting and she's like, I don't feel better yet even when she was guilty and Ice invites her for a beer, but she's like, no, nah, I'm just going to go to a meeting. Does she go to a meeting? No. She goes to the casino. She's keeps hitting the blackjack thing and she's smoking cigarettes. So cool. Damn. Well, wow. That cuz like this Lena woman was like very pre like this all goes to the premeditation was how she slept with Nate and like like got into the got to know Rollins and got close to Rollins also she could kind of pull off this crime. Yeah. 
you know, like that's really sort of very diabolical. Um, well, wait until you hear about the real crime this is based on. We will be right back. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Okay, so this crime is typically, unfortunately, called the Jody Arias case, even though it is the case of the murder of Travis Alexander. But this you probably have heard about this case because it was truly one of the biggest cases in the last decade. And it was fully covered on CNN. HLN had a full nighttime show dedicated to it. I remember watching it on TV um, on like, you know where I was, Lisa, I was at the comedy condo of Zany's downtown watching it on TV. Cause it was like a TV with 10 channels. And I was like, I guess they have HLN. I'm going to watch a shit ton about this weird Mormon murder or whatever. And then later when I was living, when I was in LA on a trip, I remember finding a Huffington post article that was just a 150 slide slideshow of this case. And I stayed up till three in the morning, just like going through crime scene photos and like finding out every detail about this case. So needless to say, I've been, I've been, I've been studying this case before. I'm not going to say I remember everything that I learned in 2013, but I have re-researched it for the purposes of the pod. So Let me start from the beginning. Um, Travis Alexander was just a young guy, a salesman, a motivational speaker for a company called Prepaid Legal Services living in Mesa, Arizona. Everybody loves this guy. He's got family. He's got friends. He had a kind of a rough childhood growing up. Like he had abusive drug addicted parents, but he, you know, overcame everything and had like a great professional life and lots of friends. And everybody spoke of him like he was just the greatest, nicest guy. But of course, he's like he's about to hit 30 and he's Mormon and he's not married. So he is sort of like people are kind of like, when are you going to settle down? Blah, blah, blah. So in September of 2006, Travis meets a hot young bottle blonde named Jody Arias at a prepaid legal conference in Las Vegas. Okay, these two immediately hit it off. They have chemistry. They start talking on the phone like multiple. Is the prepaid part important? 
Yeah, it's called. That's the name of the place. It's called the place. The place is called PPL, prepaid legal. And I think that's like their services are like it's probably similar to like who set up my business account. You go like on the internet and like get all these legal services like in a oh, bundle. Probably. I thought they like you know? prepaid for their tickets to the conference, and it's like, is this a clue? Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> that's the name of the business. Okay, that's okay, the name okay. Of the <laughs> yeah, the name of the business is prepaid legal. So, um, they start talking on the phone all the time, high school style. Um, she lives in Palm Desert. California shout out to Palm Springs area and he lives in Mesa, Arizona. So they're long distance. And to give you an idea of how quickly things are moving, they meet in September of 2006. And in November of 2006, Jody is baptized by Travis in a Mormon ceremony. So they're not even dating yet. They're just talking on the phone and they have this crazy chemistry, but I think she's so into the idea of dating him. And like, he's into her that like, they probably know like this can't really go any further if I'm not Mormon. So she starts like the process of, I don't really know what the Mormon conversion process is. All I read was that she was baptized in this Mormon ceremony. Yeah. I bet it's like, if all you have to do is want to be a Mormon and dunk in a lake, like they're desperate yeah. for new followers. <laughs> yeah. And we actually just watched my big frack Greek wedding yesterday, starring Nia Vardalos and her husband gets baptized in the Greek Orthodox church to marry her. So I just watched a weird baptism of a grown man yesterday, but this was a woman and he did it for her. And then they begin dating in February of 2007. I don't know if they had like a busy Christmas season. I don't know why they couldn't start dating right after the dunk, but I guess, <laughs> you know, um, so premarital sex in the Mormon church is a huge no, no, but they, these two are banging. Like it is their job. They're having tons and tons of sex. His friends all think Jody is very weird. She's very sexual. She like straddles him like this one. I watched this 2020 uh, about it where this one woman's like me and my husband are just with them in a hot tub, the four of us. And she's straddling him forward facing and like kissing his neck while the other two of us are in the hot tub. Like she's very awkward. But a lot of that was part of her asserting her possession of him. And like she's very possessive. She goes through his phone. She goes through his email, his social media and stuff. And um, she's just very like they just seem like they have this extremely sexual and intense relationship. They break up in June of 2007. So this is like a four or five month relationship. They do keep up the physical stuff. They've got, they have a ton of phone sex. They exchange many, many horny texts. And a lot of it is him initiating. It's not just like, I don't want to paint the picture that like she's a full stalker. Like they're both going back and forth, but you get the feeling that he treats her like a sex object and not like marriage material. You know, like he texts her how beautiful she is. He texts her how bad he wants to fuck her and stuff like that. But like not, you know what I mean? It's not the same uh, as somebody he would probably marry. Oh, and then this is relevant to something that happens in the episode. He does text her at one point saying, I'm going to tie you to a tree and put it in your ass. <laughs> and he, oh, sorry, that's not even a text. That's in a taped conversation. And she goes, oh my gosh, that is so debasing. I like it. So that's like exactly kind of like the wow. text that we're seeing from Gene and uh, Lena in the episode. Okay. After they break up, she does a totally normal thing and moves from California to Arizona to be near him. She moves to Mesa, Arizona, like the town he lives in. Um, and so his friends are all like, this girl is psycho. He's been dating another girl. And twice while he's at this girl's house, he comes out and his tires are slashed. So like, obviously they think that's Jody. That's not just like a thing that keeps happening at this girl's house. Um, so they never got married. Oh, no, no, no. 
So he's just this. I guess I assumed he was a virgin till 30 waiting for marriage, but he was a slutty Mormon who slutty Mormon. Okay. And we, we find out a little bit later that they do do a lot of anal sex because like, you know how Mormons will think that that's not real sex or whatever, like anal and oral, but then they also have regular like penetrative vaginal sex. And so yes, he's breaking Mormon rules left and right. Cause he's like so horny for her. You can like tell when you see these text messages and hear these recorded conversations, like that they're just like little fuck machines for each other. So not to speak ill of the dead, but he was very horny for his murderer. Um, and not to blow, <laughs> not to blow the thing, but I think everyone knows how this ends. One funny thing I think in that they're highlighting in a lot of these news things is that they both have blogs. Like, I just think it's very mid aughts to be like, and then he wrote on his blog X and she wrote on her blog Y. And it's just so funny. Cause like, I don't know. I never had a blog like that, but if it's so that time period. So they'll talk about these, like, I mean, I just saw, did you, did you watch, um, the fuck, what was it called? The murder hotel one hotel Cecil. Yeah. The hotel Cecil hotel one, like everything in that whole do like documentary series was like her blog. And like, it's always cryptic shit. That doesn't mean anything. Like he writes on his, or she writes on her blog. I cannot ignore that. There is an ever present yearning and desire that pulses within me. It throbs for gratification and fulfillment. What are you even talking about? And then Travis writes, desperately trying to find out if my date has an axe murderer penned up inside of her. Okay, a little bit more specific. Um, so he obviously is thinking, I might be dating a psycho, but I'm obviously very horny for her. Um, so during the first week of June 2008, Travis tells his friends that he thinks Jody maybe hacked into his Facebook. And he said that he told her to stay out of his life forever. So this could have been the triggering moment for Jody where she was like, if I can't have you, nobody can. Because then on June 4th, she drives to Mesa, Arizona from California. They have sex. They have a lot of sex and they take all these sexually explicit photos, which you can see in the Huffington post slideshow that I, I mentioned earlier. If you're interested, there are black bars over the, the naughty bits, but the photos are there. And then Nobody hears from Travis after January, June 4th for a few days, okay? Jody drives to go visit this Mormon meathead guy that she started to date in Utah that she also met at another prepaid legal conference. This girl's like a conference rat. Um, and he says that they make out passionately, that her and this guy, they don't have sex. But he says it doesn't seem like she's got anything on her mind. Nothing seems off with her at all. On June 9th, five days later... Friends have not heard from Travis. They go to his apartment. What I think is weird is in the 2020 thing, they say he has roommates. And I'm like, was nobody home? Like, because he uh, is found when they go into his apartment, they find that his apartment is covered in blood. He is dead in the shower, decomposing and starting to mummify. Like when they go into the room, they can smell immediately. So I don't understand why these roommates uh, didn't like sense anything maybe they were out of town i think he lived in a house and he had his own like wing of the house type situation oh okay well he had housemates that's yeah, right and they but, were like I on mean, a different side so maybe they just missed each other coming in and out or something yeah that's creepy if i knew i was sleeping for four days and nights with like a, my dead roommate in my house oh my god anyway nightmare fuel um so his wounds are so extensive. It's like very, very disturbing. Um, so, you know, I don't know, fast forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear about this, but he's been stabbed 27 times. His throat is slit like very deeply. Like it's cut his voice box, his arteries. Like it's a very deep, like ear to ear slit. And he's been shot in the head with a 25 caliber gun. 
So the scene is really, really horrific, like splatter everywhere. It's like a Dexter situation. Um, they find a bloody print. Like I, I read a fingerprint, but I also read palm print, but it's like a bloody print and they find a hair. Um, basically a week after the body is found, Jody voluntarily goes to the Mesa police department and is like, I really want to help. I heard that my friend Travis died. And this is just like textbook narcissism. Like she just needs to insert herself into the case. I mean, we've seen this obviously on SVU a million times, but it's wild that she literally called them. Like it wasn't like they called her in and they're like, we're calling in all friends of Travis, all ex-girlfriends or whatever. Like she went to them. She gave fingerprints. She gave a DNA sample. And she said she hadn't seen Travis since April. So um, the crazy piece of evidence in this case that people talk about and is um, the most, I think, interesting is that uh, is a digital camera that they find in the washing machine. It's been run through the wash cycle. Now on the memory card, they find photos that have been deleted, but as you should all know, nothing is ever really deleted. Like you delete something, it still exists somewhere. Like, I don't know. It's like very hard to really, really delete things except for like papers I wrote in college where I'd be almost done and then it would disappear. Um, or maybe that was an excuse I used. I don't remember, but the, Memory card, they obviously recover. They have their own Teru person and they uh, recover these photos that are um, all these sexual photos of Travis and Jody. And then these kind of arty type photos of Travis in the shower, like him with his arms up or like leaning against the tile with the water running on him. You can see all these photos in the slideshow. And uh, then there's literally a photo of his body on the floor of the bathroom, bloody and like having just been attacked. So like, it's very crazy because you're just scrolling, scrolling and like, it's like arty photo, arty photo. And then just like a dead body. It's like, or a suffering body. Like it's, I don't, it's unclear if he's fully dead in the photo, but it's beyond, it's really, really nuts. So again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that this podcast is Kara and Lisa's school for how to get away with murder, but like, why would you just like wash a digital camera and leave it there? Why wouldn't you're on your way to Utah to visit your other boyfriend? Why don't you just throw it out the window in the desert? I don't understand why this girl did this, but she thought, I guess that water was just going to fully destroy the camera. She also stripped the beds and like washed all the sheets. There's just a lot of strange stuff, but like then none of the blood was cleaned up. Like, I mean, it's very, or the bloody palm print. So all these photos are time stamped. The police know immediately that she's lying about not having seen him since April, that she was definitely with him the day that he died. Um, and then the, the DNA results come back and all the forensic results come back and the hair belongs to Jody and the bloody print had Jody's DNA and Trav and Travis's DNA. And in theory, she could have just went to hang out with another boyfriend and never called them or talked to them and they could, would never have her DNA or find her. Yeah. Well, I think once they found the pictures, they would have, they would have brought her in, you know, on the camera. Yeah. But if she took the camera, I'm saying if there was like, oh, yeah, if she took the camera, if yes. she if she just took the camera and hung out and never talked to them, they would probably have not found her for a while or not. Found yeah. Her. Or yeah, because they would have had to have like a reason to get her DNA. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it's wild, like how she almost wanted to get caught. But she has this weird personality that you find out about more later that it's like, did she just want to be like infamous and be famous in a way? Like it's, she's very, very strange person. So, um, 
They have her in for interrogation and she's denying having anything to do with the murder. She's just like, I want to help you guys. Like, this is all on video. You can watch all of this. And it's like kind of fascinating. She's just like, yeah, I have no idea what happened. I want to help you. Like what, what, what went on? And like, so then she's talking to this detective, detective Flores. And, um, he basically like brings out the smoking gun eventually. And is like, Hey, we have these photos that are timestamped of you there. And there's a photo of him bleeding in the shower. Um, and she's like, are you sure it's me in the photos? And it's like, yes, bitch, it's you in the photos. And then she changes her story like on a dime to tell this wild tale that is uh, here on out referred to as the ninja story. And the ninja story is that two people in ski masks in did a home invasion, entered the house to specifically attack Travis and kill Travis. So there's a man and a woman ninja. She fought the woman ninja and the man ninja fought Travis. And she said they killed Travis. She heard the gun go off. She kind of blacked out. She doesn't remember a lot of stuff that happened. And then the woman, the, she was able to push past them or something like that. And they were like, just you leave and never tell anyone this happened. Like they came in to murder Travis and let a complete witness just leave. That's what her story is. And the investigator is straight up like, okay, bitch, that's the craziest shit I've ever heard. This is like not true. And then he tells her that they're going to book her. And she goes, I know this is going to sound like really weird or shallow, but is there any way I can clean myself up a little bit before you take my mugshot and like my book, like book me. And he's like, no, you're going in as you are. Like, we're not giving you a hair and makeup sesh before you get your fucking hair, like mugshot taken. And then the detective leaves her alone in the room. And you can see this all on YouTube or on like uh, the 2020 special I watched about this case. Um, she starts acting crazy. Like, and this reminds me of Amanda Knox a little bit. You know how Amanda Knox case, like she was, her roommate had just been murdered and she was like making out with her boyfriend and doing cartwheels and shit on the side. Like, it is weird behavior, but the, with Jody Arias, it's even stranger because she's like in police custody and they've just told her we're going to book you. She like puts her whole body back over her chair and does this weird like yoga back bend over her chair that is like weirdly sexual. And then she starts singing Oh Holy Night. She's just like singing, which I, I have to admit as a Jew, that is my favorite Christmas song. I do love a holy night. And now she's kind of fucking ruined it for me. Cause now I'm going to think about her every time I hear it. And then she does a headstand. She does a full headstand. You don't like jingle bells. Oh, I love, I like jingle bells, but Oh, Holy night is my, is my favorite. <laughs> I just think it's a beautiful song. Um, she sounds like a mad TV character. I'm no, like, what she's happening? so strange. Like she's so strange. And it's very bizarre and performative. Like she must know people are watching. She must, you know, like it's just so weird. She does a full headstand up against the wall and it's very weird. So if you want to Google Jody Arias headstand, you can watch the whole video. Is it a good headstand? Yeah. I mean, she's very fit. You know, you can tell that she works out. She's very thin and like, you know, she just goes right up in this graceful headstand and you're just like, damn girl, but also you crazy. So while she awaits trial, she does all these interviews. Okay. So in her first interviews, she maintains her innocence. She's like, God knows I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I had nothing to do with his murder. I would never hurt him. He was my friend. Okay. A year uh, to, uh, in 2009, she starts giving interviews about the ninja story. Okay. Well, no, I mean, people are maybe believing this. I don't know. It, it really makes no fucking sense. December of 2010, which is, Crazy. She's now in jail like a year and a half, just like awaiting trial. 
and obviously not getting bail because of the heinous nature of the crime. In December of 2010, she beats out 50 other inmates in an American Idol style Christmas caroling contest with her rendition of Oh Holy Night. And the contest is held by Joe Arpaio, that fucking cowboy sheriff that Trump liked, America's toughest sheriff. And the prize that she won was a stocking full of um, like treats and a turkey dinner for herself and her cellmates. So I saw that's also there's also a video of that. She's OK. I wouldn't give her a record contract, but she's a fine singer. I love um, this case. I'm so yeah. sad about the murder and whatever transpired, but I'm very into the antics. It's so crazy. It's antics central. Okay? And I don't understand why SVU couldn't throw us a singing competition in this episode. <laughs> Let's get Lena in jail. <laughs> Do but it's like X Factor because they have to change it a little bit. So it's just like inmates turning around in their chairs, being like, <laughs> I pick you. Um, and so she's giving all these interviews. She's like winning American Idol contests in jail. She's just getting all this press. And like obviously, Travis's family is like devastated. They loved him. You can tell how much they loved him in all these interviews. And like, and then they see this pretty young woman getting all this media coverage. And it must have just been very devastating for them to have to see her all the time. And I mean, it gets worse. Let me get to what is her third and final version of her story, um, which is that she claims that she was the victim of domestic violence and that she was, that she killed Travis in self-defense. And one more thing, she claims that Travis was a pedophile. She claims that he wrote her letters where he confessed to his attraction to young boys and girls. The letters were like never found, or I think a judge tried to have them admitted and they were not admitted because I don't think they were real. And they found nothing on his computers, like nothing in his house that showed that he might have had these kind of um, proclivities or, you know, that he was into that kind of thing. Um, she claims that the day of the murder, she walked in, he was masturbating to a picture of a young boy. They never found the picture. Is that something you grabbed on your way out of the house? Like the photo was never there. So basically her third and final version of the story is that she did kill him in self-defense. I'll get into it a little bit more later. And then she tries to completely... Uh, attack his character and uh, for his family like they talk about it in uh this documentary 2020 thing like where that was so hard for them not only have you lost this family member but now the, his killer is painting this insane picture of him that's not true and that is like disrespectful and horrible um so her trial begins on january 2nd of 2013 and she's a totally different looking person. This is again, something they borrow in SVU. Like she's not blonde anymore. She's got this dark, dark brunette hair. She's got bad bangs, glasses, cardigan city. And I want to say she looks like a librarian, but we have a lot of librarian listeners who are probably hot. So maybe this is an outdated reference, but you do get my point. Um, she is definitely playing up the like mousy, like in all the photos of her and Travis, you never see her wearing glasses. And suddenly in court, she's got like specs on every day and is like, Oh, you know, like looking so meek and like trying to be cute. Um, the prosecutor in this case is a man named Juan Martinez. And in his opening statement, he played part of this media interview she had given in the years prior where she said, mark my words, no jury will convict me. She later said that when she said that she meant that she had been planning to end her life by suicide and that no jury will convict me because I won't be alive. But it's like, okay, that. Okay, that's not how it came out. But um, I think obviously he's trying to use that to say to paint this picture of like a sociopath who is orchestrating a full defense of herself that's not real. 
Yeah, that's what we forget. We always talk about how like murderers are such good actors, but some are just bad liars and actors too. You know, like yeah, this is a great example of someone who just really failed her improv one hundred and one class. Just can't get it together. Yeah, but she, I think, believe like they were talking about when she was making up the ninja story. I mean, she made that up on the spot because that she made that up right after she said I wasn't there and I didn't do anything. When they confronted her, she was like, "Okay, here's what happened with the ninjas." It's like. So she either had that pre-prepared or she made it up on the spot. And like, even though it was a batshit story, the detective was like, she did have a lot of details. Like she knew a lot of details, but you know, still not good enough. Um, One crazy thing that the detective testified about detective Flores said that Jody had written a check to Travis for $200 for like a car payment before he died. And she really wanted to know if he had cashed it before he died like over $200, she emails his sister about the check to offer her condolences and find out about the check. Needless to say, Ugh. the sister never replied. I just, that this doesn't have much to do with anything. I just thought it was an interesting tidbit. Um, so here was what made this trial so crazy is that she testified in her own defense. And that was something she insisted on. She insisted on testifying and she testified for 18 days, which is like, unprecedented apparently like i it's maybe happened before but it's not a common thing especially in a case that's getting so much media coverage and i think she thought i gotta get my face out there i gotta be heard people once people see how like cute and like shy and demure i am they'll never think that i could have done such a heinous crime and um so her defense that what she testifies about on the stand is that travis freaked out when she dropped his camera and that she had to defend herself. She says he screamed at her, kicked her, and body slammed her. But they brought in other witnesses, people that had dated him, and like no one in his life ever said he had a temper. No, I mean, I do think there are cases like this where men can show a different side, you know, of themselves. But like they brought in other women he dated, they brought in ex girlfriends. They were like, never, never, ever did he ever do anything remotely violent or show a temper towards me. Obviously, there's. Only the two people in a relationship know what goes on in that relationship, but you're not getting, it's not, we're not getting a picture that this is an abusive guy. Um, and then later the jury foreman, whose name was William Zervakos, he said that he thinks the 18 days on the stand hurt her. He was like, she's not a good witness. Like it was not good for her to be on the stand for that long. And like, just, he, she just gave the prosecution so much ammunition. I wish she broke out into song. That would I know. that would have really <laughs> cinched <laughs> this as my favorite case of all she time. She was like, "There's one song that can express how I feel," and then she like sings "Lady Marmalade." Okay, um, Arizona is one of the states where jurors are allowed to um, ask questions after the prosecution and the defense have rested. They asked a hundred questions, and that really showed how skeptical they were about her testimony. So there was a clinical psychologist for the prosecution named Janine. DeMart. Her name is spelled J-A-N-E-E-N, a very interesting take on Janine. And she said that there was no evidence that Alexander had ever abused Arius and no evidence of PTSD or amnesia. 
and that she claimed all this total memory loss, like for this long period of time, which is kind of inconsistent with how traumatic amnesia works with PTSD. Like, I think it's more snatches of memory, whereas she's like, yeah. And then just for four hours, I don't remember anything. Like that's kind of not how it works. So, um, this clinical psychologist says she thought that Arias was suffering from borderline personality disorder and showed signs of immaturity and quote, an unstable sense of identity. And, um, I think that is true when you watch some of the docs about her and stuff like she when she met Travis, she kind of didn't know what she was doing with her life. Like she wanted to be a photographer, but that wasn't really working out. And then she, I think, got a job for prepaid legal. And that's how she met him. And so um, she was kind of trying to figure out, you know, who she was. And then I think converting to Mormonism two months after you meet someone is a red flag. Like she didn't have any idea who she was. And it's probably part of a larger diagnosis. But so then. After the trial finally concluded in, on May 7th. So it started on January 2nd. So it's like a five month trial. The media is wrapped. After 15 hours of deliberation, Arias is found guilty of first degree murder. Um, and out of 12 jurors, five of them found her guilty of first degree premeditated murder and seven found her guilty of both first degree premeditated murder and felony murder. Um, and then the next phase of her trial was the death penalty because people really wanted her to get the death penalty. The first trial for her death penalty sentencing was like a mistrial because like, I think the jury just could not decide. And then eventually she was given life in prison. So she was able to avoid the death penalty. She did testify at her death penalty uh, hearing saying I've designed a t-shirt and it's like this white t-shirt that just says survivor in purple on it. And it's just like, everything about her rings inauthentically, you know, it's like no one not thought you were a domestic abuse survivor until this case happened. And now you're just making this weird slap shot t-shirt. That's like, that's what you're going to sell or something. Like she was, was very strange. She would have yeah, really she, done good out here in the world. And oh, she was doing merch girl. She has, she was doing merch. Her brother has opened an eBay account where she sells art. She makes in prison. Um, there's all kinds of shit this girl is doing. So does she have like lover fans like male killers do? Like are people I'm into sure. her? I'm sure. I didn't read anything about that, but like I am sure that she does. How do you think our friend Joyce Arts Management will react when I start buying Jody Arias? <laughs> <laughs> do you think I can get oh a good deal? <laughs> I would love to find out from her um, how serial killer art is like or killer art is like uh, valued and how it appreciates over time. I do have to note, Jody did have a boyfriend for a while. I remember that. Show. In jail? She, yeah. It was yeah, a guy okay. who visited a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Like, I, I, she's, I mean, she's like a cute girl. Like, I'm sure people were like, you're, so she. Also, and this might be rude, because, like, obviously it's sad this man is dead. But I do wonder if the victim was a woman, not a guy, if they would have used her sexual, like, kinks against her to be like she deserved it. No, I know. And well, I, wonder that. I think that what everybody was saying was like the, this case was so, was so popular because it was like dripping with sex. That's like yeah. what the people were saying. Like there was just so much sex. There's so many text messages where they're like, she's like, we're just horny toads. Like I want to fuck you so bad. Like my pussy's wet. Like she sends all these crazy texts. There's recorded mess. Like there's recorded phone conversations though that are recorded because she recorded them to use them against him later. 
Like she would record these sexual conversations with him. Like, I think in a way to say like, if you ever leave me, I'll send these to the Mormon church. Mm. So she had some issues and I, yeah, I don't think that anyone's like sexual kinks should be used against them. But I think because of the Mormon community that she was in and the fact that she was doing all this other possessive crazy shit, it all kind of paints a picture of a person who's not fully with it. Um, I did want to mention that they tried to um, appeal this case saying, you know, because of the media, she didn't get a fair trial. And also because Juan Martinez, who I mentioned was the prosecutor, he got into some trouble because he was accused of leaking the identity of one of the jurors and sexually harassing female law clerks in his office. Like apparently he had a real, my eyes are up here, Juan kind of problem. Like he would literally just stare at women's chests in his built in his office and women in his office would like always kind of like duck into conference rooms when he was around. Cause they didn't want to like deal with his leering. But I think he um, ended up getting disbarred because of uh, he was in a sexual relationship with a blogger that he leaked this um, juror's information. Again, blogs, huge part of this case. So in the end, she is still in jail in Arizona. Apparently, she started a Twitter account and wrote, I don't know if I'm going to plea or appeal. And that was late uh, in 2015, I think. But she's still in jail. And I uh, even after the disbarment of this prosecutor, the judges who decide whether she's going to get an appeal said, even though he had egregious behavior, you were convicted like (laughs) completely correctly and you're not going anywhere, baby. I wonder if she's popular in prison. I am obsessed with her. Like, I do understand the commotion the world had. Yeah. And I want to know, like, is she like, damn, that wasn't worth it. I'm in jail. Or she like still thinks she inno- she's innocent or is she just crushing it in jail and she's so crazy that it doesn't matter and she's living in a fantasy land. Like, I just want to know everything. Yeah, she's um, very chaotic and chaotic. I... Good <laughs> word, Gen Z. <laughs> but I... I think that is what draw people to it. Like what you're just like fully and you get the feeling that she believes everything that she's saying, because like in her mind, maybe it's true. But she um, it just to me is like the whole they dated for four months, you know, and I know that they kept up the sexual relationship, but the murder and I will say, if you're going to go look up this slideshow that I am referencing and that will be in our show notes, the graphic, the photos of the crime scene are very graphic. Like they do show his body. And like, it's just so, such an aggressive crime. It wasn't just like, if I can't have you, no one can. I'm going to shoot you in the head. Like just the stabbing. I mean, like there is anger in this murder. So it's like, ugh, I don't know what. Yeah. Like, was it about him or would she have killed someone else? The next down boyfriend. The yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Wow. But I think it's it's interesting how SVU did sort of like this. They took this case, but this case is very like um, Arizona Mormons like they. So they took whatever they could and like put it in a New York setting, you know, uh, in the SVU episode. But it is just like I always want to believe women. And I do think that it is a small, small, small percentage of people like this that are or like the Lena character that are fully inventing a scenario and having a, a you know, psychotic. Yeah. And I always say like, uh, you know, people lie about being robbed or insurance scams or so many different crimes. And it it never takes away the legitimacy of other people who have been robbed. And I don't understand how only in rape and sexual assault cases are a few like a 
the mar- this tiny population that lies is not just seen as like, oh, these people are unwell and committing other crimes. Yes, and so it's true. all women lie. But it's like Ryan Lochte straight up was like, I got robbed during the Olympics, fully lied, and no one cared, and everyone just believed him anyways, and everyone can still say they're robbed, and it doesn't right. it mean that men lie. And so it is very annoying that like, why the small percentage of women suddenly represent all the women that are attacked. I mean, I know why patriarchy, but no, it's just but that fun. is such a good point. I never thought about that. Like this is the only kind of case where like the bad actions of the few affect the many. Yeah. Whereas like that doesn't happen in like, yeah, like wrongful accusations of robbery or like larceny or fucking tax evasion or whatever. I think because it's always it's always couched as this crazy bitch is trying to take this man's life down, is trying to ruin this man's life. And it's like, in this case, yes, but that is a very small percentage. I think the topic of religion also is interesting of um, uh, Travis Alexander was a very devout man. He wore like a ring, I think, for like Uh being a verge. And then he fell in love I think, or had this passionate thing for Jody. And so he was torn, but he broke it up because he was like, I know I'm doing something wrong, but he was so drawn towards her. Like it makes, I don't know. I just feel like the idea of religion as a thing. No, it's so true. Really the whole, the religion thing does add like another layer to it because it's like in any other world, if he wasn't religious, he could have just like been having sex with this woman and there wouldn't have been the shame. And like, they could just be horny for each other. But I mean, I think also, um, Yeah, I think it was like another it was probably another thing where that made Jody feel inadequate or like an outsider and probably fueled like the rage more, you know, like I got baptized for you, you son of a bitch. Like, who knows, you know, like what who knows what went through her mind? I hope I would love for her to do some kind of like jailhouse confessional and say, like, here's what I was thinking or like, you know, you're not getting out of jail any time in your life. So you might as well give us some insight into what the hell was going through your mind. Like, did you drive there specifically to do that? Did it like just hit you at some point? Or did he say, did he say that's the last time we're ever doing this or something after you guys had all this horny sex? And then you were like, ah, you know, like, I don't know. Well, we won't know until she tells us. Or were there ninjas, you know? Or were there ninjas, Lisa? This is like when that guy in that episode said, I saw ghosts of the KKK in the hallway and you were like, we can't say he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So the ninjas could also be the ninjas could also be real. Well, we have a uh, hot ass guest. Can't wait. Yeah. Excited. Stick around. We'll be right back with our guest. Our next guest, we're so excited to bring you this chat. He is a stage actor who originated the role of Greg in Neil Labute's Reasons to be Pretty, where he was nominated for a Tony. And you know him from TV, from HBO's Newsroom and Life in Pieces. But on SVU, you know him as Nate Davis. Check out our chat with the very talented Thomas Sadowski. We did watch all of your episodes. So if you want to talk about... Yeah, you're a three-peat offender on SVU. Murder, douche, and then you come back to redeem yourself. (laughs) A little bit, right? I actually managed to show up and get a little bit of redemption. Yeah. Yeah. I I did the uh, the SVU gambit. I think I I, I did the trifecta of all the Law & Order shows, if I remember correctly. I did the original recipe, extra crispy, and and the (laughs) Colonel's blend. Uh, um, (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, a lot of actors we talked to say that it's like a rite of passage to get on the Law and Order shows as a New York actor. Did you feel that way when you got booked? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, not only is it a rite of passage, but particularly like when I first started coming up in the business in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff that was shooting in New York. And like definitely post 9-11. Like the, there wasn't really anything that was shooting in New like the industry bailed on New York. So the only people that were really stuck around, it was like rescue me and Dick Wolf, like all of his shows were the only ones that stuck in New York. So for theater actors, for actors period, but, you know, primarily for theater actors, um, you know, who were making $400 a week off Broadway, you know, before taxes and union dues, um, those those shows like literally kept people in their homes, you know, so to get to get hired on on a law and order gig was a lifesaver. And it was a total rite of passage, you know, it, and, and it's one of those great things where, you know, after you've done it and you've joined the I don't call it the fraternity, but you join the you know, you join the club anywhere you go in the world, you can turn on one of the law and orders and you can see, you know, some of your old friends from back in the back in the city, like doing their thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing little world. I, I, for, for the rest of my days, I will appreciate um, Mr. Wolf for what he did for the city and for actors in the city and for, and for, you know, writers and and the crew, not a lot of people had the, the, this, the, the, the decency to stick around um, after the 11th when we, when we really needed people. Um, and he did. So for all the ups and downs and his weird pink socks, um, I really like the guy. <laughs> Wait, what are the weird we pink socks? That. Tell us okay, about this. So every time I've ever gone in to meet with Dick Wolf, he's been wearing pink socks. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's scoop. I don't know if that's like a daily thing or if it's just one of those weird coincidences in my life, but I always associate, (laughs) I always associate Mr. Wolf with pink socks. Well, I was going to say, not only are all your friends are on SVU, but your wife, Amanda has been on SVU. Have you seen her episode? I have seen her episode. We were actually talking about it. um, (laughs) When I told her I was doing this podcast, that was about SVU and she was like, (laughs) She was like, I did SVU. And I'm like, I know you did SVU. <laughs> Mike, Michael O'Keefe played your father. No, and we and had Michael O'Keefe as one of our first guests on the podcast. And he I talked about both of you so. guys. Oh, that's very nice. Um, I should hope you had Michael on the patent podcast because he literally, there was a, a rule that was put in place <laughs> called the O'Keefe rule. Did he tell you about this? Yes, he told yeah. us. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he should have been like among the first guests you ever had because he is Mr. Law and Order. I think he's the only person who has appeared on those shows as much as like Maloney or Mariska or, you know, or Sam or any of the uh, the old school heavies. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I love Michael. He's a great dude. He's a he's a good friend of the family. Yeah. So so basically you did do you did do um, original recipe and then you did mm. criminal intent all before you did SVU. So by the time you did SVU, were they just like calling you in being like, we want you to do this part? Yeah. OK. Yeah. So Warren called me. Warren Light called me for SVU and said, like, you know, do you want to come in and play this part opposite Kelly? And I was like, yeah, totally. Absolutely. And um, he was like, I don't know, you know, might come back. It might not. I'm not sure what the deal is going to be with it and whatever. And I was like, okay. Um, so I agreed to to come in and do it. And, 
we had a blast shooting the first episode and um they sort of mentioned like yeah i think we'll we'll probably do this again uh but i i warren and i from like from the jump from like my first day on set we were in like a tiff a little tussle about that hat (laughs) about that We have like three questions about the hat. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I had many as well. Um, I was like, I was like, Warren, why do I have to wear this douche hat? And he was like, because you're a douche. And I was like, no, but can I take it off in some of these scenes? And he was like, no, you're a douche. So you wear the douche hat. And I was like, bro, like, I, I'm really unhappy with the douche hat. And he was like, I kind of don't care. Like, I I think it it has to be on all the time, and um, we had a lot of fun uh, knocking it back and forth. But I, you know, I, I sort of like I cringe at the, the prospect of people going back and watching those episodes with that that hat. That is so funny. We literally have like in our list of questions, like, so uh, you play a douchebag a bunch of times. How do you like, like because the, the hat really does the hat and really the layers. There were so many layers. Yes, so <laughs> many layers. I threatened to throw that hat into the East River. There was a scene. I think we were shooting outside. Um, by you the were river like walking her dog right by the river. Walking her dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um. And it, we, we shot that like, you know, at like O Dark Hundred. So it was wicked cold. And I I remember threatening Warren, like, if if you think for a second that you're going to have me back for a second episode and make me wear this hat, I'm going to go throw it in the river right now. <laughs> and he was like, do you think we only bought one? <laughs> when you did come back that same season in the Gridiron Soldier episode, I don't think you have the hat anymore, right? Did you win the battle? No. I eventually won the battle. Well, I think what ended up happening is because there was a little bit of redemption coming my way yes. in that episode is that he felt like if if we kept the hat that um I couldn't be rede- redeemed. Exactly. The Impossible the to forget. Is redeemable. <laughs> it is unforgivable. Absolutely. It's a it is a blight upon humanity and all who wear it um are cursed. Um but yeah, that's really how I differentiate my my douchey characters that I play throughout my career is just different hats um and uh and vests yeah because i was just wondering because you know when when we were finding out we were interviewing you i was like oh i remember him i I think i first saw you in the slap that was like the first thing i saw you in and your character is a little bit of a jerk in the slap right yeah for sure he's he's not the most pleasant guy certainly (laughs) at the beginning yeah right yeah so i was like i was just wondering i was like yeah we got we got the slap guy we got this character like do you feel like you often get cast in these douchey roles or like you're, you're good at it. And like, where do you get your inspiration from? Do you know a lot of douches in your real life? <laughs> yeah. If there's any names you can name. Yeah. You can name names. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, it started to become like, I started to get worried at a certain point <laughs> where I was like, I was like, Oh my God, is this how the world perceives me? And I, you know, I actually think weirdly that, um, in some strange way that it is the way that the world kind of perceives me at people who don't know me because like they've, they, they've seen, you know, a couple of things that I've done, the law and orders and, and the slap and, you know, the early seasons of the newsroom and, um, you know, some of the movies and stuff that I've done. And I, I, I very often in my film career have been asked to play these, um, sort of shithead characters and, it's so funny because 
in my theater career, it's the, the exact opposite. Like, Oh, you're I, like the nice guy on, on stage. Yeah. 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 I, oh. so it was when I first started doing film, it was like, Oh, what a welcome change. Like I get to play these, this, these shitty guys um, that I love making fun of because I grew up around a lot of them. And then all of a sudden it became like, Oh, I keep on getting cast uh, in film as this. And most people know me outside of New York from film work, obviously not a lot of people have seen off Broadway theater outside of New York <laughs> city. And so, um, in even Broadway, you know? And so like, uh, it, it I was like, it's this weird juxtaposition that I've had to sort of negotiate throughout my career. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the inspiration for me for these people comes from, um, you know, a lot of people that I grew up with and then a shocking number of people that I meet in the industry, particularly early on, like, like I said, I came up in the late nineties and early two thousands, sort of at the height of the Weinstein power March, you know, when, when, um, you know, Harvey used to like call an ex-girlfriend of mine at like two or three o'clock in the morning and leave like really gnarly messages on her voicemail, like her answering machine, like long enough ago to where we had answering machines. Right. And you could hear them. Um, and like, you know, there was like a whole way of behaving and there was a, a like a a generation of young actor men that were coming up at that time who uh were sort of highlighted by these dudes who like like to you know come across this like sweet funny kind of guys but were actually sociopaths and um wow. i just i really like enjoyed um watching those people and then taking the piss out of them, at least in my own head, by playing these parts. And then, you know, it was also just sort of fun. Like, it, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's fun to be the bad guy. Sometimes it's fun to be the jackass that like nobody likes. Like, I grew up in a small, very hyper religious conservative town in Texas. And I, you know, am not that at all. Right. You know what I mean? Like I, I was a kid who had like a big giant cue in terms of my sexuality and my <laughs> teen years, you know, and was just like, I don't know what I am. I like, you know, I like pretty people. Um, <laughs> and, and, like there are a lot of them. Uh, and I don't care what their plumbing says, like, <laughs> you know, and so like, it was just like, it was a, so like, I, I kind of come preloaded with this weird anti-authoritarianism streak, you know, where I just like, I kind of enjoy like poking people in the eye and making them uncomfortable, particularly people from that world. And so like, there's a part of me that like, you know, I don't know, I just get a kick out of it. I'm like, ah, I'm acting like you and you don't even know it. <laughs> so did you do theater in high school? Oh yeah, for sure. I actually got kicked out of my high school theater program. For Ooh, what? What'd you do? Um, because our our theater teacher uh, wanted to do like these really intensely Christian plays, and I was like, "That's bullshit!" Like we're in a public high school, we can't yeah. be doing it. like that. That doesn't seem right to me at all. And so, like that started me off on the wrong track with her um, pretty early on. And then um, I just, I yeah, I had a real hard time. Uh, I had I didn't respect her at all. And I, I had a really hard time keeping my mouth shut about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I said, I was like this weird little punk rock kid in conservative town in Texas. So like, you know, I, I me and my friends were were big time theater rats, but we didn't really we we saw it for what it should be instead of what it was 
actually being. And so there was a number of us that actually got removed um, from the program, which actually turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to me. I, I went out and started doing community theater, I think my junior year of high school. And the people who ran the community theater in, in my little town were actually people. Uh, there's a, a wonderful man named uh, Randy Wilson, who was the original Pontius Pilate in Jesus Christ Superstar on Broadway. Oh, wow. Um, and then played Jesus Christ in the national tour. And so he was like this amazing professional theater rat and ended up in this small town because of like some family drama and uh, and creating this community theater there. And, and it just became like this safe space, this this amazing kind of sangha of like little reprobates and miscreants. And we all just, you know, we're there with each other. And it was like, you know, adults and young people. And we were all like just a little bit off and we were building sets and making theater together in this little building that used to be a Mexican restaurant in downtown Bryan, Texas. And, um, I it love was, to hear uh, this. that's awesome. It was really beautiful. It's just such a nice like lesson and story to hear that you got kicked out of this thing, but then found a community that you loved so much more and fed you. I got really lucky. Yeah. I mean, I think that people you like finds like, right? Like if you make yourself available to it, I think, and you persevere, you will eventually like, you'll find your, your equilibrium and you'll find your tribe. Um, so to speak. Yeah. Um, can I ask a SVU question again? Um, did you, did you ever like watch the show? Oh yeah. I love Melania. I love Mariska. Like they're, um, I think they're fantastic, like truly, truly amazing actors. And so like, yeah, I definitely watched the show. Like I said, you know, when you go out of town, you like, you just flip it on and then it's like, it makes you feel like you're home. You, you know? can't ever not find it. It's always on the road. Yeah. Um, yeah. and your first episode you were on, you were on a Mariska Maloney season yeah although i think it may have been more of an iced tea heavy episode when you were in a that episode anchor where you're like a racist yeah how do you prep to be a child murderer <laughs> yeah when you remember when you murdered all those kids <laughs> oh my god that was an ice heavy episode and <laughs> you called him a racial slur i did which was one of the I got to tell you, dude, like in terms of days in your career, when you're like, you don't really know if you want to wake up in the morning and go to work like <laughs> that day, I was definitely like, I can't believe I have to go in and say this to Ice-T to his face. Like I loved Ice-T growing, you know what I mean? Like I still do. Yeah. I was a huge fan of him as a musician. And I was like, I can't believe that I have to go in and say this to him. And like, I wasn't sure how I was going to, if it would be cool if I went up to him and was like, dude, I'm so sorry. You know what I mean? Like, I, I trust me, I, this makes me so uncomfortable if I should just do it or like what. And he was so generous and amazing and gracious and, and wonderful about it. And then um, there's a scene where he uh, he tackles me, like he stiff arms me over a desk um, right before he arrests me. And uh we ended up shooting that scene a lot. So I feel like he, he kept on asking for more takes. So I sort of feel like he was really gracious on the front side and definitely worked it out on the backside of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you did get like a razzle dazzle moment on the stand with Barbara, Barbara, I keep calling her <laughs> with the DA. Um, and I was yeah. just wondering how that court scene was and like, getting drilled like that it's a fun scene i love i love raul um we're old like theater rap buddies so like when i knew that we were gonna get to go 
you know, have like a good time back and forth. And Danny Pino too, you know, there was a, in um, Rapist Anonymous, there was, I got to do a, a scene with Danny. Yeah. Um, who came into the the meeting at the end, you know what I mean? And like sort of sussed me out or whatever. And like, I, I've known Danny for God at this point, like 22 years and I've known Raul for about as long too. And so like, you know, when you get the opportunity to, to like get up there and, and have a good time with your buddies that you've known for a long time and whose work you respect. And there's just this sort of like fun thing that happens where it's like, you go like, ah, oh, yeah, man, we're going to, we're going to smack the ball back and forth. You know, and these these people in in Des Moines they ain't ready. You know, they ain't ready. Like this is this is what we do down on Bleecker Street. This is, you know, here we go. This is how this is how we do. And like, and you you get to have a good time with it, man. Like, I I, I yeah, I really enjoyed that. Too. Like I said, I love Raul. I, I respect the hell out of him. So we we had a good time with that for sure. And you know, it's a Law and Order stand scene. Like, you know, it's. uh that's a pretty cool thing to get to do. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, I feel like it's like a, an actor merit badge, you know, not only did you get them, get the episode, but you got a court scene. You yeah. Know I mean? yeah, you, got, yeah. Like, you got to be on the stand. Like that's the little, you got extra. to be in that box. Yeah. With a friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> With the friend. Well, and like so many of them around too, you know what I mean? Like I've known Warren as a playwright for forever. And I mean, one of the great, <laughs> my first, my first law and order, of the franchise was with was in the original recipe and um it looked like i i, I was gonna shoot sam waterston in that episode whoa um there was a, there was a scene where like we're on the courthouse steps and i pull out a gun and like shoot the guy who's standing next to sam and um when sam and i started working together on the newsroom like i came up to him and was like hey man i don't know if you remember but like a billion years ago i played this part on law and order and you know, I, I had to shoot you on the courthouse or almost shoot you on the courthouse steps or whatever. And, and Sam was like, I was on that show forever. I'm so sorry. You'll have to forgive me, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember you at all. Um, and I was like, oh, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I get it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, and then get to, you know, years and years later to get to work with Sam, like as uh as sort of compatriots on the newsroom was a really cool thing. We got to be really close buddies after that, which was nice. So our um, listeners really um, are horny for Raul and Danny and Marishka. So do you have any like stories or tidbits from set or from life that you think um, they would really love to hear? <laughs> oh my God. Um, Raul did a play uh, on Broadway with Jeremy Piven. And, um, Jeremy left the show. Was that Speed the Plow? Yeah, just sort of left them hanging, you know what I mean? Like in the middle of the run because he got mercury poisoning. Yeah, he got mercury poisoning from, from too much sushi. <laughs> from eating too much sushi, right? And so uh, we were doing a show on Broadway at the same time, um, me and Stephen Pasquale and um, Piper Parabo and we're in Ireland. We're doing a show on Broadway at the same time. And, and after our shows, we were having people like guest artists come in and like lead these Q and A's. And then, and Raul came in one night to, to do our guest Q and A. And we bought him like $400 for this sushi um, <laughs> to had to sit and eat at the, as we were doing our Q and A, it was pretty fun. Um, that is really funny. 
then the show just yeah. closes because no one is in it. Everyone has had sushi poisoning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and weirdly, like none of us got mercury poisoning. Um, we were all totally fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, like I said, like I, I, I've had the great experience of knowing these people as friends for a, a long, long time and, and as colleagues. And like Raul is one of those people that, you know, he he makes you like Raul and I were actually nominated against each other for Tony Awards one year. Oh, and really? Yeah, me and Raul and uh, James Gandolfini and Jeff Daniels. Whoa! And uh, and then the guy who won, Jeffrey Rush. Oh. Uh, and so, like, we got to spend like this whole weird like theater award season together. Um, That's a out. good bunch. It was ridiculous. Yeah, that's quite a crowd to be amongst, for sure. It was ridiculous. Yeah, we got to spend a lot of quality time together with those guys, except for Jeffrey. He was, like, really aloof and didn't hang out with anybody. But, like, um, Jimmy Gandolfini and Jeff and Raul and I, like, we got to know each other pretty well, hanging out and doing all these functions and events and stuff. Raul is one of those guys that, like, he's one of those actors that I will, he's one of those guys that, like, makes me leap out of my chair at the end of a show. You know, I just think, I think he's really, really special. Yeah, we get sent a lot of clips of him from our listeners. They love him. They <laughs> send sure us clips do. of him, like from uh, company, I think, and like all kinds oh of stuff God, he's done. Man, that's like yeah. that's like you know, ar- raises the hairs on your arms kind of performances. No, he's he's pretty he's pretty <laughs> ridiculous. Um, as your listeners know, and he's you know, for for the people on this side of it, it's sort of like okay, all right, come on, Astor, like save some for the rest of us. <laughs> like you know, you, you can't like you can't be that good looking, have that cool of a name, and be that talented <laughs> in so many facets of your life all at the same time. Right. It's kind of bullshit. Like, could you at least be like Engelbert Humperdinck, like have just like a shitty name or like something, like some sort of kryptonite? But he doesn't seem to have any. Wow, he was awesome. He's I, so cool. I love him. Well, I love that he knew the hat was terrible, you know, like immediately. We didn't even have to bring it up. <laughs> yeah. And um, we did not uh, leave us in because we don't have the dates or like know exactly what's up. But he is in an upcoming production of a play that's breaking kind of genre boundaries of what a play even is with Judith Light SVU royalty so um look out for something with judith light in the near future which i would be excited about i miss the theater baby yeah oh my gosh if it comes to oh if it's in la let's go it is we hear about it yeah we'll follow him on social and before we get into our postmortem i know that i referenced the x factor and i meant to say the voice please don't send me a bunch of pictures of adam levine turning around in a chair to let me know that i was talking about the wrong show i i got i i know Oh, there was a funny meme about, you know, Gwen Stefani and Blake Shelton or yes. whatever got married. And it was like, Gwen Stefani is the perfect example of an OC girl. She was a punk ska girl goddess and then ended up marrying the most conservative, boring white man she could find named Blake. <laughs> and I thought that was a pretty funny tweet. I have to send it to our friend Blair, our OC girl. Yeah, but... she is an OC lady. That's so funny. <laughs> but yeah, Gwen was like everything. And now she's oh my nothing. god! I was obsessed with her, so no doubt in high school was like my soundtrack. Um, I mean, you know, you're a badass when you can make braces be a trend. You know, like I was begging <laughs> for braces. 
I also begged for eyeglasses and I wanted crutches and I was so happy to get crutches. Like it's sick. I bet there's some sort of study about this or other kids have to have really <laughs> tell me. I you used begged. fake crutches for three okay. days. I got crutches. I didn't need them and I wore them to school for three days. Yeah. I think it's just the attention. When someone has crutches, you're like, look at me. Like <laughs> I know. Oh, I was jealous of people with their pink casts. Oh yeah, I never, I've never knock on wood. Knock on wood. Um, uh, well, let's talk. Let's do post mortem. What did we learn from this episode? I mean, like, if someone's wearing a douche hat, guess what? They're a douche. Yeah, you don't have to get to know them. You can judge a book by its cover. (laughs) You can judge a douche by its hat. Yeah, I guess. I mean, like we've said before, like we've said in the episode, I feel like we always believe women, but that doesn't mean that there's not an occasional. Uh, Jody Arias out there. And the thing is to think about this woman, not Jody. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to defend real crime. Uh, <laughs> but in the episode, we also don't know what like this chick's been through. You know what I mean? Like who knows right. if she was abused as a young person and this right. is what happens. Yeah. Don't get blowjobs on a ledge. I, yeah. Even if someone is your, what, like you feel committed and fully trusting and they haven't threatened you and tried to destroy your life. Just no BJs, no fucking, no, nothing by a ledge. Let's yes. do that. No ledge yeah. fucks. No ledge fucks for sure. Um, that's a little bit too edgy for me. I would not. I also learned, um, that there's leftover jizz in your dick after you come. That was, thank if you, you Melinda. Pee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Better pee and clear that shit out. That's probably how guys get UTIs or something. I don't know. If guys, I used to have a joke about cum dripping out and you running to the bathroom, but I don't remember it fully. I had a joke about hobbling to the bathroom after you have sex when you're the woman. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. I yeah. obviously didn't have a dick hobbling uh, bit. Well, maybe I would. Maybe I would. <laughs> I, <thought it> was, <laughs> I didn't know it was a personal experience joke. I was so excited. I, you know, sometimes when crowds are like too uh, hip and cool, I was like, are they going to be into this? But they love my 9-11 joke. And I'm like, oh, this is good. You know, (laughs) this is and that's just a tease for you listeners that you need to see Lisa Traeger live to get that 9-11 content backstage. Everyone's like, the audience seems really likable. You're going to love it. I go, yeah, no, I'm not likable. I'm like, I'm not worried about (laughs) them being likable. I'm like worried about me. Uh, what else about this episode? Rollins, yeah, Rollins. I mean, uh, Rollins, oh. like, get a, like, I guess what we've learned that we've known is that Rollins is a good detective in, in, in her job and a horrible detective in her life. Like, she cannot, she does not have a good picker for men. Do you think Kelly Giddish knows how hated Amanda Rollins is? Because the messages we get, like, I posted the game this last week no, but and people are like, Kelly fuck Gitt- her. Then there's Kelly Giddish fan accounts. So I'm sure she's like, you know, for every person that's like, fuck you, there's somebody that like screams at us when we don't know the name of her dog. So, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, I guess that's fame, baby. I don't want to say like, don't trust your sponsor, but don't trust a guy that is only kind to women he wants to fuck. Yeah. And not a, to men or, or wi- women. women. I wouldn't trust a guy that's only surrounding himself with women at a, in an AA setting, you know? He, he wouldn't help Danny Pino. Like, he doesn't want to help men. He just wants to help women. That's but a, I bet he doesn't want to help women that he doesn't want to fuck, too. Right. I'm sure if, like, a non-conventionally attractive woman went in and was like, can you help me? He'd be like, I'll load it up, babe. Find another sponsor. Also, uh, don't scream you're not my daddy at work to your coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good advice. Yeah. That's really embarrassing. 
That's a great. That's just a great. That's all over. That's like cops, not co- any any. Yeah, any job. Yeah, if Ice yeah. T and all your other detective friends are like, this guy seems shady. Maybe take a second moment. You know, take a moment to be like, okay, all my esteemed colleagues don't like this guy. Let's see what's up. Yeah. And like, there's a reason why they tell you not to date people in AA, because when it doesn't work out, you end up ripping butts at a blackjack table. Like you just need to work on your sobriety before you, I don't know, date. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you're only doing this because of the movie 28 days, right? No, I've never even seen that. Are you kidding? We've talked about this, I think, before, too. It is an awesome movie. It's Sandra Bullock. She goes to rehab. Star studded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what it's about, but yeah. But that's where I learned you shouldn't date for a year. And Sex in the City, that episode where she dates the guy too early and he kind of goes off the rails. Um, Yeah. So I've only learned that rule from television. Well, I also had a family member who dated somebody who was fresh out of rehab. And we were like, this might not be a good idea. And then I learned from other people like, oh yeah, they say in AA don't date for a year. So I learned that, that, that way. I learned that the hard way yeah, um, as well. Um, so just reiterating that as a postmortem finding for all of you and anything else? I don't know. No, I guess we learned that three hole wonder, uh, passes all standards, standards. and practices. <laughs> Because, you know, there were lawyers discussing it. They sent the script in and all the lawyers were sitting debating yeah. about it. And then they all were like three whole wonder stays. That's a lot. Yeah. Which is and great. I guess I guess also if life gives you a murderous personality and you're a murderer, you can still be a star in jail. You know, you can still win American Idol prison edition and sell your work on eBay. And um, we'll be checking back with Lisa in a couple of weeks after she's acquired her Jody Arias art. <laughs> no, no. Oh, yeah. Did we learn anything from the real crime? Destroy evidence, you fucking idiots. What are you doing? <laughs> Stop with the trophies. Stop with the camera. Stop it. Yeah. Destroy your Nothing shit. Nothing is ever really deleted. Yes. Ugh, these people. I mean... <sighs> Have we talked about this? Like if there should be escape rooms, but for committing crimes and see if you get away with it. We have talked about that. I still want to do it. That's your shark tank idea. I think. (laughs) Yeah. We've also learned that unfortunately, if a crime involves like a hot young woman, the crime's going to be named after the hot young woman. It's not going to be named after the victim. Unfortunately, Travis Alexander's name is not as popular as Jody Arias. And I think that's just because he was murdered by somebody who was considered hot. But it must be really hard for victims, families to see their um, killers get fame and notoriety and attention and magazine covers. And I can't really imagine um, that heartache. Right. And because she was also like particularly disrespectful by trying to paint him as a pedophile, like in death, like, you know, that's really horrible. So she not only took him off the earth, but also tried to like drag his name through the mud. So I'm sure his family feels a very specific way about her. Um, but in general, don't kill people, but yeah. Yeah. That's the lesson we learned. Don't kill people. Don't kill people. What <laughs> yeah. are you doing? Eight months uh, into the pod. It finally, we're like, you know what? We're not going to yeah, like, you know how you could avoid all this evidence shit. Don't kill anyone. All right. Thank you for listening. And Kara, where <laughs> how are we going to try to help the community? What do we have yes. for our sister peg segment? 
Yeah. So, okay. So for this week's What Would Sister Peg Do, which is our weekly segment where we give you resources or organizations that can help you learn more about what we talked about in today's episode. We decided to highlight this week, Women for Sobriety. Um, It's womenforsobriety.org. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping women discover a happy new life in recovery from substance use disorders. Um, They have been around since 1975. Um, Women for Sobriety has certified facilitators leading support groups online and in person, as well as phone volunteers available for one-on-one support. So anyone that's looking for, you know, help in their, in, uh, their recovery, please check out womenforsobriety.org. And all expressions of female identity are welcome. Thank you for that, Kara. Mm-hmm. And next week's episode, we will be doing Rooftop Season 3, Episode 4. They are on Hulu. Hopefully they didn't fuck up the numbers this week. Um, <laughs> and Peacock, your library, all that jazz. And we can't wait to see you next week. Bye-bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>